0: Hello, welcome again to Sport Unlocked, bringing you all the week's sports news with me, Rob Harris from Sky News, Martin Ziegler from The Times and Tarek Panger from The New York Times. And we're beginning this week with tennis and the shock news that the former world number one Simona Halep has been provisionally suspended after failing a drugs test at the US Open. The former Wimbledon and French Open champion says it's an unfair situation that she feels confused and betrayed She also says, I will fight until the end to prove that I never knowingly took any prohibited substance. So, Martin, what's known about the substance revealed by the International Tennis Integrity Agency?
1: Roxadustat is a bit like EPO, um, the the favoured drug used by endurance athletes. um, It has the same effect. It basically builds, um, stimulates red blood cell production. So it can carry more oxygen. um, And so if anyone involved in any sort of endurance sport can um, get a performance enhancement by the fact that they will be fitter effectively.
0: It's not a substance that will be widely known. Where have we seen it being detected before in sport?
1: Yes, it won't surprise you to learn that it's been used by a couple of cyclists in the past. In 2015, when it was known by the name FG4592, Fabio Tabor of Italy and Chile's Carlos Ayarzún were both um, suspended after testing positive for for the drug, which um, at the time was used as an experimental treatment for anemia because it p- boosted red blood cells. So, it's one of these things which um, the, the WADA has since banned. And yes, yeah, so it's um, it's going to be a testing time for Halep for sure.
0: She'll now be awaiting the outcome of the case and any punishment. The 31-year-old Romanian hasn't played since September when she announced she would be taking the rest of the year off following no surgery to improve her breathing. Well, moving now to the big talking point of the week and the leadership change in response to mounting opposition and concerns about a failing strategy. We're not talking about British politics, of course. It's the Super League and a new CEO for that project, Bernd Reichardt.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The A twenty two, the sport management company, um, has appointed a, a German media executive uh, as their new chief executive, and he um is the man sort of given the responsibility of reviving this collapse project. Says he can do it by twenty twenty five. I don't know. It seems a bit of a tall order, but we know. We, I suppose it's all going to hinge on what happens in the European Court of
2: Justice. Yeah, this guy, burnt Rycard, man, in his late forties, um, from from Germany, as you say, has come in. And when you say Martin, revive it, we don't actually know what it is at the moment, as well, do we? So we know what it won't be because they keep insisting it won't be this closed shop, permanent member, um, super league that that collapsed in flames after forty eight hours. So it. They hope will be something else, um, and for me, what what this seems to be is an ef- an effort to to look like they want an open dialogue to be public, to be everything they weren't in the first iteration. Cloak and dagger, hidden meetings, and you know, suddenly launching what appeared to be a coup on European football. Now this is about um, stakeholder engagement. Let's all work together and come up with with something uh what what that will be guys any idea what 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 do they have in mind
1: i did ask if they were gonna have uh if it's possible that they could have a some sort of competition without um english clubs involved because i think it's quite difficult for the english clubs to to join it now with the sort of new rules that have been brought into the premier league um but they, they are sort of people sort of involved in the project said no, no, they, you know, they they effectively accept that they need to have English clubs there, um, and they think that there's a way, there will be a way that they could join it, if, uh, if the clubs get the go ahead to organise a competition instead of UEFA. But um, so that's one thing. But I mean, interestingly, the, the sort of presentation that sort of was doing the rounds this week from the from the A22, the Super League Rebel Clubs, very, very anti the Premier League, saying it's become too dominant, um, it's outgunning all continental leagues, the Champions League is increasingly dominated by English clubs, backed by hedge funds, public investment funds, shakes and oligarchs, which um, is quite, quite inflammatory language, I thought.
0: You know, speaking to Reichart myself, it seems like this is the attempt to sort of show the presentable, acceptable face of the Super League, everything they should have done in 2021 if they really wanted to get this project off the mark. And they're trying to sound reasonable rather than perhaps provocative, although you might say some of those comments about the Premier League are provocative. And this is their attempting to hope that the uh, European court ruling goes in their favour in Luxembourg in December and being ready to respond to that. Yeah,
2: look, um first of all let's get clear what A22 is it's not the super league company it's all a bit of a um, a mess at the moment A22 is a sports is a management company this is a spin off sports business and that that is a couple of men John Hahn and Anas Lagrari they they didn't like being in public themselves so they've hired this guy Ricard, to to front to front this little group this isn't the clubs this is the the company behind behind the, the the plan, as it were. These were the people that were, were travelling around Europe, United States, wherever these owners were, to, 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 to get this project that failed together. Um, and, Rob, you're right. I mean, all of this hinges, really, on the European Court of Justice ruling in, in March, which is about whether UEFA essentially is acting as this abusive monopoly, not allowing anyone... Outside of its orbit to run a competition, if the if the ECJ rules in UEFA's favour, which it, it might do, um, certainly they got a lot of support from a lot of governments. Um, then then this thing's kind of perhaps dead in the water. But what 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 it does in a way is focus on UEFA as well. Whether whether this thing is right, whether UEFA is the right body to both um, run a competition and regulate it. Because Martin one of the things you mentioned that they they have um, taken aim at the Premier League being too powerful but they've also talked about these sheikhs and oligarchs essentially talking about financial control and if you remember the old fi- uh, the old ec the old, the old sorry um, super league model one of the things they failed to um, express publicly one of the many things was their financial control mechanism that would have at least put the brakes on some of this state spending that we're talking about at the moment maybe you know so that's that's some of the backdrop here so does uefa have to run competitions can it be the regulator i mean that's a really good question in itself i think
0: and as an example for instance the women's euros in the summer despite being so sort of popular lost money for uefa things like the women's competitions the youth competitions lose money for uefa so they are running Lost mate in competitions, which something like a twenty two wouldn't want to be doing, would they?
1: Yeah, that's a good point, actually, Rob. Um, and we saw this week, didn't we, on a, just a, an aside about um, FIFA saying that the broadcasters not bidding enough for the TV, TV rights for the Women's World Cup, um, and they've sort of rejected all the bids they've had so far.
0: But it's particularly noteworthy because one of the initial issues with the Super League breakaway announcement was, of course, there was it one sentence on women's football. And when I was asking about the women's game uh, to Rykot this week, he seemed, you know, less substantive in terms of the details. But I think particularly launching something of a breakaway now or launching a Super League wouldn't be acceptable as men's only, would it? No, no,
2: perhaps not. And it's it's that that paragraph that they've they've tacked in, it feels like. But to be honest with you, um, you talk about UEFA and, and FIFA running these women's competitions. But essentially... 99% 99% of their focus is being is on men's football because it generates this money. I mean, I, I've talked about this before, whether there should be a spin-off like tennis for uh, a women's focused organization that is funded from from central coffers of FIFA and run by women or run by an organization dedicated to women's football. Because um I see we're giving credit to, to FIFA and UEFA there for running loss making competitions. Like well well done. Isn't that what they're supposed to be doing, anyway? Are they doing enough? I'm not so sure. Um, perhaps we look. We, we have a broader look at this. Um, one little aside, guys. By the way, Manchester United uh, were one of the central players in the original Super League. Of course, they've now apologised, and there was a rare meeting between Joel Glazer and the fans afterwards. There was the 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 pitch invasion at Old Trafford before the Liverpool game. Rob. you were there, I think. Um, but the public relations company, or one of them, working on behalf of uh, A22, is also one that works for Manchester United, it seems. So, you know, it's, um, you know, maybe just a small world thing, but <laughs> I couldn't help but notice that.
1: Uh, yeah, that was pointed out to me as well, actually. Um FSG Global, which is, used to be sort of Finsbury PR in London, is, is working for the, the Super League, um, and Saad Verbinen, which they merged with it in June, has worked for Manchester United <coughs> PLC in New York for um, you know for the last ten years, and is still working for them. So yeah, a bit of a conflict there for sure. Of course,
0: one of the reasons why perhaps Manchester United decided to become part of the breakaway in 2021 was did they think they had the backing of the government when Boris Johnson was still prime minister? And at the time of recording, who knows who will be in Downing Street next week as prime minister, potentially again.
1: <laughs> I mean, that would be crazy. And I mean, actually, just on a, on a very sort of minor sports politics, football politics thing in, in, in Britain, Liz Truss very against uh, an independent regulator for football, a statutory one, uh, and her one of her top advisors, Jason Steen, also very anti it. And uh, suddenly that's all changed in the space of like a few weeks. Suddenly maybe it's back on the table again and uh, uh, we could yet see that go through.
0: Well, one of the big talking points in England this week beyond Liz Truss and trying to cling on to the Premiership unsuccessfully was the matter of the Premier League rivalry between Manchester City and Liverpool, which did boil over on Sunday in their match, which Liverpool won. There was the abusive chance, weren't there, from the City fans towards Liverpool, particularly referencing Hillsborough. And also, there was the Manchester City team bus that was attacked in the street by uh, Liverpool fans, and they published the picture of this windscreen being uh, cracked, or at least the window of the bus being cracked. And then these anonymous Criticisms of Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp for Manchester City, Tarek. What did you make of some of that and how it unfolded?
2: Well, there's quite a lot to unpack there, Rob. I mean, look, this is like a, a several days of, of of reporting. The this started, if I remember correctly, with the managers' press conferences before the the game and and Jurgen Klopp talking about the impossibility long term. Of clubs that aren't state-owned, competing with those that are, so those that have resources of entire countries. So in the Premier League, we're talking about, yep, Man City, um, Newcastle United, and then I guess in in, in France, Paris Saint Germain. And I didn't think he said anything particularly controversial or as a lightning uh, light bulb m- a moment from Jurgen Klopp. It's pretty obvious that. Individual businessmen, however wealthy they are, or financial companies, are not going to be able to compete with a with a state. Anyway, then you have the game taking place and the incidents that you you um, mentioned there, Rob. Um, the the chanting, the Hillsborough chanting. Obviously, uh, Liverpool put a statement out after the game um, and were very upset, and the fans were very upset, and this has been going on for a long time. The city uh, bus incident happened uh, around around that same time. But what 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 I, I found very kind of disheartening, uh, I must say, is the the anonymous briefing from Manchester City that Klopp's comments were xenophobic. I mean, that is a very very strong allegation to make. Of course, Man City's owners are um, from the Gulf; they're Arab. And essentially we're saying Klopp was being, being xenophobic by making that point. What it does, Rob, is it creates a chilling effect. Can't talk about any of this stuff. Deflects all this other, from the other maelstrom that we've just talked about. We're now focusing on, is, is Jürgen Klopp a xenophobe? And anyone who does dare open their mouth or, or, or talk about these issues will be branded as such. And it was done anonymously and, and it was just sort of written um, in 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 various newspapers and 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 briefed on on the television, I'm quite uncomfortable with that. If they were so sensitive to this, they should come on the record. Personally, um, I don't think I'd be able to report that because it's such a strong such a strong claim, and we don't know who said it. And then down the line, there's a chance that people say, "Well, we never said this," um, and that for me is a big problem. Martin, you know, what, what's your view on this?
1: Yeah so the briefing was to to be specific was borderline xenophobic. Um but I I agree I don't I don't think it was any way it was anything like that. Um which it, it seems a sort of weird take on the whole situation for me. I mean loads of other people have talked about it before. I mean do you remember Arsene Wenger talking about financial doping I think that was more in relation to sort of um Chelsea and Abramovich um, as well as the, as well as yeah. sort of state-owned companies, um, I think it's not. It's just a. It's just a sort of a fact that these enormously wealthy countries owning, owning a uh, a club are going to have resources other other clubs aren't going to have, I and mean, it's just a. It's not. It's not borderline anything. It's just a fact to to most people as to as to whether it should be reported or not from a, from a. Uh, from a, a sort of anonymous briefing. I I agree, I agree to an extent that if Manchester City want to get that message out, they need to say it on the record. But I think if this is coming from the very top of the club, which apparently it was, and it is not just one media outlet, but it's been given to all media outlets, I think it's quite a significant thing. And I, I think it also pour some light on the you know what this what the relationships are at the top of the Premier League and you know how toxic things have got. so I actually think it's probably justifiable to use that and you know it, it has de- it has sparked a huge amount of debate and
0: it's clear where it is coming from in this case. and the question is is it a deflection tactic? are they trying to actually muddy the debate the fact actually the main focus has been on the vile chance? aimed at, at uh, Liverpool fans by City. The, the City haven't published anything on their website. They've not published a public apology that I've seen. And Jurgen Klopp is entitled to give analytical points about the state of competitive balance in the Premier League, isn't he, particularly uh, on the financial yeah, front? But
2: of, co- of course it was going to cause a debate, and a great debate, because you've just suggested a major figure in this country is a xenophobe. Like that, that, that The debate was always going to be there once, once, the, once the fire is lit. Um, anonymously, <laughs> this is this is the issue here. Now, now, so with the new cycle is the 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 state uh, the claim that these state clubs are, are as you pointed out, pretty obvious, uh, have got great resources. Then anonymously briefed that that's borderline xenophobic, and then you have headlines obviously everywhere with this man's face or anyone else's who <laughs> I'm no xenophobe says X Y Z. Oh, you know, of course it's going to be a debate. I mean, it's, but it's it's ridiculous, isn't it? I would say
0: our obligation as journalists is to insert key context. So not just report, say, comments like that and challenge particularly anonymous ones from a club briefing against, say, a particular manager to provide if there is key context, which there is, you know, key context around how the influence of the state spending is having on, uh, on football. Yeah,
1: I think it's... Uh, I mean, it, it's interesting to see how various things handled it. I think... Um, I think we at the times initially ran it but not as the sort of main not as the main thrust of 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 the piece um those those that particular phrase and then we and then we took it out because we thought it was probably unjustified and then he then talked about it when clock talked about it again in the press conference that we referenced it again
2: Yeah, yeah, but he didn't. Just on this, this is a good one. So this is a really good example. He didn't, he didn't talk about it. He didn't, Jürgen Klock didn't arrive. He said, I just want to make clear I'm no xenophobe. The way it works is that he gets asked a bunch of questions in a press conference and says, you know, they say you're, these are borderline xenophobic. Are you xenophobic? That, you're going to have to reply. Say, you know, I'm not. I'm not xenophobic. And it suddenly, you know, it, it it goes it goes off again. But again, re- really, really fascinating. But what the, the other point, and to be fair to um, City, they've got a really um, they're quite right and justified to point out that the windscreen on this bus is really dangerous. It's not the first time that um, a Man City bus has been attacked in, in around that stadium as well. Um, and you know. We're lucky no one has been injured yet because, you know, a moving vehicle, a, a, a brick or whatever thrown at, an object thrown at the windscreen, it creates an enormous amount of risk. And, and so far, um, only through perhaps luck, that there's been no great, great further, any tragedy as a result of it.
0: The dangers that are there around the stadium that are being presented. One of the issues in terms of the actual reporting is, effectively, if... Jurgen Klopp was found to be his NFO, which of course there's nothing pointing towards that. Then he would be subject to an FA ban, wouldn't he? The minimum ten games. Yeah, th- I think
1: that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think that that particular sort of um, insult, whatever. Allegation has been is, has been sort of resorted to quite often, when people have, for example, questioned the Saudi takeover of Newcastle. And you say, "Oh, it's just you know you're, you're, you're sort of being it's just because they're, they're coming from the, the the Arab world." But uh, you know, I think if say Australia, the Australian government decided it wanted to buy Aston Villa and put loads of money into it, it'd be exactly the same, wouldn't it? It, it just it just so happens that they, uh, it, the people who are buying clubs happen to be from the United Arab Emirates, Qatar and Saudi Arabia.
0: And there is an ongoing Premier League case into Manchester City, which is yet to reach a conclusion, isn't there? <laughs> Four years and counting,
2: <laughs> uh, know, Will this pod still be going on? Will we still be uh, working by the time that's finished, Martin? I mean, we, we, were, we were speculating whether it would be done last summer. Do you remember?
1: I think I might I think I might even have said in January that I thought it was going to be done by the by the end of the summer transfer window, so I
0: <laughs> got that one wrong. We are waiting to discover the outcome of a UEFA investigation, this one into why blameless Liverpool fans were subject to mayhem outside the Champions League final in Paris in May. Now, Martin, we are getting some more details about this. There was all the chaotic policing that we saw, and actually very lucky to avoid serious injuries there at the Stade de France. Yeah,
1: we've had um, an independent report by um, academics from the the University of, Queen's University in Belfast, who've looked into this and fairly sort of scathing findings, not surprisingly, they they sort of drew on hundreds of testimonies from people who were there and basically said that the, the use of tear gas by the... The French police um, amounted to criminal assault on on fans, including children. UEFA were completely um, failed in their responsibilities and ensuring a a safe stadium. So, so, I mean, it's interesting to see what UEFA's independent report will be, headed by a Portuguese guide due out in November. I think i would be surprised if. It, I think it's going to have to be fairly critical, otherwise it's going to just be a, a, an embarrassment.
2: You know, Martin, due out in November. That's really interesting, isn't it? Um, guess what else is on in November? Oh, it's suddenly the World Cup. Oh, oh dear. Um, what I heard was that it was going to take three months. So, the, the, at the time, so the Champions League final, I think, was at the end of May. Three months would take you to. Uh, June, July, August, end of August, September, and now it's out in November. Um, what, what do you reckon? Around the group stages, maybe the quarterfinals, an evening, maybe a Friday night? Um, th- there's form for, for this sort of thing. It's really important for, for all the people involved, uh, the, the the people who are there, the fans uh, who are in, in Paris and all the other people who witness this stuff, that this is not going to be a whitewash and, and, and buried and it's going to be presented clearly and there'll be a, an opportunity to interrogate it properly and and perhaps to have a transparent discussion. Do you think that's going to happen?
1: I think there's so much focus on it and so um, people will be watching it very closely that they would be mad if they didn't address it fairly. And some of the people involved in it, um, they've got their own reputations to to protect Um, So I think I would be surprised if it doesn't come up with some fairly damning findings. But hey, I have been surprised before.
0: Obviously, there were significant French failings there and UEFA can't really get away from them. But I think obviously they'll be hoping to ensure none of their own existing leadership comes under any fault. Well, one thing often talked about is a Champions League final in the United States, something Sheffield talked about in his opening uh, weeks as UEFA president. Everyone seems to want to try to hold hold events around the world. You've got La Liga doing so. Now the Premier League are potentially looking at a pre-season tournament in the US and maybe the Community Shield being played overseas, particularly the Community Shield at the moment, just seems to sort of just exist without little love, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, I think the Community Shield, the clubs find it a bit of a an intrusion, affects their pre-season plans. Um, it sort of... Nobody really likes it where it is. I don't think even the fans are particularly that keen on it. But so the idea is, you know, could you move that to mid-season, play it abroad somewhere? But the, the, this preseason tournament in the USA, I think is, I think that's probably quite likely to happen. They've done the the Asia Trophy in the Far East, which ran for a few years. I think it sort of it was fairly successful. So, but if you had one in the US, a lot of clubs already go there, don't they, on their pre-season tours. So it would probably tie in quite well.
2: Martin, you mentioned the Asia Trophy, isn't it? Just Unless unless there's any significant money behind it and a big prize, it's it's not a competitive event. It's just shifting what is the Asia Trophy to, to the US. Martin, I think it was, did you write about it or was someone else I read this week? That Todd Bowley's um, idea of a, an all-star game might be one of the ideas to replace the Community Shield. Is is that something? Is that a possibility? Is that what we could see in the US? Well,
1: I I, I, I don't think the uh, the the preseason tournament would be an all-star game. But yeah, for the for the Community Shield, that's definitely one of the Premier League clubs that has suggested that, and and not not Todd Bowley. That's somebody else. So in a way it sort of makes sense but on the other hand it's quite difficult to organize isn't it because if you have an all-star the idea is an all-star game against okay. all-stars from La Liga or whatever it then becomes quite tricky
2: a couple of players from each team leaving their preseason yeah, exactly. training with their with their teammates yes. presumably but, but you yeah, a tournament as well i mean it's a bit like well what's the difference between a tournament and a friendly game right who who, who cares and um it like they is it is it just a case of shifting the asia cup to the u s martin that's what I'm getting from you here or well, maybe slightly
1: bigger that is any anything and so having having more clubs involved um but does it, i mean i suppose you know at the end of the day is anyone gonna pay some substantial broadcast rights for that
2: i don't know it's just, you know obviously these so many of the owners are now from the u s it uh, might be just easier for them to get <laughs> to the games. <laughs>
0: Well, we are now a month to the World Cup. Last week's show from Doha actually featured quite a bit of build-up too there. And as we get closer, a lot of focus on the rights and wrongs of the tournament being there and all the issues going on. And uh, Martin, you were in a prestigious debate discussing this at the Oxford Union this week, weren't you? Who were you up against? Who was on your side? So
1: it was, uh, yeah, I was invited to to debate at the Oxford Union, which... um, not something i've i've ever done before that sort of thing but uh, uh and the the the, uh, the the motion was um this house would boycott the, the world cup in qatar and so there was uh, on i was opposing the motion uh, and on my side was one a fellow um podcast guest from the, from from the recent past minky warden from human rights watch and uh Speaking, proposing a motion were people including Thomas Beattie, who, um who is a former professional footballer who's who's come out and and is now gay, and made a very sort of passionate and personal um, argument about why it should be boycotted. It was it was good fun, but um, I think the the point Minky and I were both making is that perhaps had this been motion been run in 2012 or 2013 then there were sort of some some very good reasons uh, why you might want to, to to boycott it but actually if we did it now it would be counterproductive the families and of the all the, the workers who've been died or injured would probably be left in the lurch with nothing and actually in terms of what can be achieved that's positive it, it probably it's better to go ahead with it and put the pressure on the authorities to Deliver some meaningful steps. Get FIFA to or Qatar to agree to the compensation, which would Minkey's worked out would be about thirty thousand dollars for each family.
2: How do they work out um, who gets this money? I was wondering. I've seen this this compensation uh, debate, and I've been wondering. You you mentioned thirty grand for each family. What what constitutes a a World Cup worker? Is it what the 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 Supreme Committee? Is saying, or is it everyone who's been working in Qatar building anything from from the day the the vote was won and in um, December? I think
1: just a, uh, Minky was saying it's basically anyone who's worked on anything, whether it's like the airport, the the metro, mm. any any of those sort of infrastructure projects. I think she said something like around about fifteen thousand um, families should should benefit.
0: Well, if Qatar thought hosting the World Cup was the end of it, the end of the scrutiny, the end of the focus, well in the last week they've been awarded the Asian Cup which is called the 2023 Asian Cup but maybe it takes place in 2024 because there isn't a window this summer, uh, perhaps be next January so that'll be another issue for European managers to get vexed about in particular.
2: Yeah, now this was a tournament I think that was supposed to take place in in um, in China but um, as a result of covid it's it was up for, for for bidding again and um korea wanted it south korea wanted it but again it ended up going to qatar and this was a this is a, a another example of sports governance in, in that part of the world in, in in general um a failure for me so it was host it was given to qatar it's supposed to be in june and july and then afterwards after they've been awarded it bit like the world cup here it seems pretty obvious it's going to be moved to january 2024 now why was that not decided before the announcement of of the host and from the east asian countries there is a feeling that the afc is in the is basically in the grip of these gulf nations um these tournaments have been in in the uae uh recently in qatar again um there is a sense that the Gulf has some sort of hegemony over the AFC um, and and that these tournaments aren't being shared around properly or fairly. And
0: as we look even further ahead, the IOC revealed this week it's been in talks with Qatar and nine other potential candidates to host the 2036 Olympics.
1: Yeah. I mean, actually, just to go back to the the Oxford Union debate, which I'll just give you the result. It's quite close, actually, but... um, my my side won eighty four votes to eighty, but I thought the the I was just thinking about it on the way home from that. Um, but actually, we're entering a, a a period of time now where we're going to have Qatar and Saudi Arabia and potentially other Gulf states and potentially China bidding for the Olympics, bidding for the World Cup. And I actually think perhaps now the 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 focus on human rights is going to become really really strong, and that's probably. One good thing that's come out of all of this, um, because if, we, if we've had both the Saudis and the Qataris talk about the Olympics, the Saudis talking about the 2030 World Cup, um, and really, really need to sort of hold the IOC and FIFA's feet against the flames on human rights now.
0: Well, will the Russians be back competing at the Olympics by 2036? Indications perhaps from the IOC president Thomas Bach that. He might want them competing far sooner.
1: Yeah, but he he sort of like (laughs) he he gave a speech to the Association of National Olympic Committees, and he sort of just say both things. One is that it's unfair that individual Russian athletes uh, um, have to suffer um, from the the results of their government's actions, which seems to sort of hint that, it, you know, they should be back and allowed in, in Olympic competition. But then said, oh, but, you know, we're in a sort of uh, a, 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 a position which is uh, they're, they're insoluble, basically, is what you were saying, in that they, they, they couldn't at the same time um, take part in sporting competition while what's happening in Ukraine is going on. So I think he, he seemed to be saying we would like to have the Russians back in, but we can't. Um, and I think that's probably what's going to happen. I don't think they will. They, I mean, there's no way Russians can take part in the, the Paris Olympics in 2024. Um, and I think even even Thomas Barker accepts that.
2: Classic uh, Thomas Bach there, where on, on the one hand or the other hand, and you're trying to figure out what, what does he mean here? What, what are you trying to say? you're looking through your notes and you're wondering, is this the story or is it completely the opposite thing? So, uh, thanks for uh, kind of figuring that out for us, Sigs. Never
0: easy to decode Thomas Bark's views. Some details about the Paris Games, actually, this week, particularly the Paralympics and the opening ceremony, which will be held right in the heart of Paris with athletes on the Champs Elysees and the Place de la Concorde. So, not using the. Uh, Stade de France, which is the focus of the Olympic opening ceremony. That's also going to use some form of show down the same.
1: Oh, that's quite a, a, that sort of passed me by that, but that's quite a um, a departure, isn't it? Maybe that could be something which future Olympic host cities could, could learn from because I, I think that, you know, the, the the old fashioned stadium opening ceremony may be a, a sort of a bit old, old hat now
2: yeah they they had this, they had yeah. this great plan um in Paris to use the Seine as well so a huge amount of the the um the city's historic and popular buildings get to be used as part of the backdrop and that and the famous river but the the issue again will be the um the security plan is going to be fairly enormous in order to 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 do um something like that guys another thing that caught my eye actually this week. Um, football leaks, of course, you remember that from a few years ago. A lot of stories that we, we, we're we still talking about. Man City, for example, um, Gianni Infantino's meeting with the uh, Swiss prosecutor, um, and on and on. There were a lot of football... Uh, Mina Ray, Paul Pogba's transfer from Juventus to Manchester United and the amount of commission the late Mina Raiola managed to to scoop up for himself. All sorts from, from that one um, source, the football leaks um web platform um and this week the 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 young portuguese uh, guy rui pinto behind it he'd been arrested in 2019 finally took the stand in his trial in in portugal in in, re- in relation to um specific really leaks related to portugal and uh an attempted extortion attempt of doyen capital one of these uh football investment companies Um, And the thing that caught my eye is that (laughs) in relation to the extortion attempt, which was him asking, I think, for around 500,000 euros from Doyen Group in return for not publishing their their secrets, he said, oh, uh, I might have done that by accident or not realizing the the significance of it because I'm... Kind of maybe young and naive, and I didn't realise I was extorting them. I didn't really mean to do it, and it it was quite a strange strategy, uh, I must say, and also one that makes us question again this claim that he's a a whistleblower, because that's what his lawyers are presenting him as. His lawyers are the same as the ones who represented. Edward Snowden for example and it's this great question about what a whistleblower is he's done this great service to certainly for journalists we got all these stories and, and and shone a light on the murky side of football but but there's also this what what do you think can you can you just sort of steal people's information if it's in the and then say it's in the public interest? well
1: I think you can both be both a whistleblower and Somebody who tries to extort money because you see an opportunity, and as if you're sort of young and uh, and naive, you you might think, "Well, I want to get all this information out." Well, actually, hang on, I could make maybe I could make some money here as well. I mean, it's possible you can be both, really? can't you?
2: Yeah, that that trial is is going to run 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 for run for a while. But it's interesting to see uh, Pinto finally on the stand. The first day actually was last September. And there was police snipers on the roof, uh, on on the on the first day of that trial. They said it was the most most heavily guarded, most um, uh, the, the most police presence in a trial in Portuguese history, and that kind of shows Incredible. you the significance of, of this at least over there. Been
1: great to be on with you guys this week again. Um, really good, interesting pod, interesting issues. One thing I thought I would mention is uh, with David Dean haven't been on. This podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, he uh, did a presentation about his new book to uh, a group of Arsenal supporters this week, and and told them that the uh, Arsenal is refusing to stop the book in the club shop or promote it online or anything. Um, and he sort of quite said he was quite sort of sad and and hurt by it. And the reason given is that Arsenal want, felt they had to protect their owners, but. Um, Seems a seems a bit of a strange, high handed move by them, don't you think?
2: Well, you know, it's another another uh, example of uh, him being upset by the club because when he when he talked to us, he talked about how sad he was at the, at the manner of his exit. Uh, so maybe maybe those wounds haven't completely healed um, within the club. I suppose they wouldn't
0: stock a journalist book that had criticism of Arsenal in it, so you can understand why they're not going to. Trying to sell a book that has a uh, yeah, issues actually, about the club, in it? terms of
1: the cronkers, I actually thought it was so very fair. I don't think it was crit- critical at all, but uh, yeah.
2: no, it, it could have been uh, that was that, it could have been a lot more yeah, critical. Sure. <laughs> a missed
0: opportunity to make money for Arsenal, there. Well, he's always been welcome on here, and that about brings an end to this week's episode of Sport Unlocked. If you can hit subscribe, it always means that the pod lands in your feed, and you can message us at Sport Unlocked on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for now thanks to both of you great stuff guys thank you and thank you everyone for listening